So we're in a series going through 2 Corinthians. We're calling it Stronger because this whole book of 2 Corinthians is Paul, the weak person, talking about how Jesus makes him stronger. And all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us little snippets of moments where he's feeling weak, uh, descriptions of how he's feeling weak, and then he talks about how God brings his strength into the midst of that. Today's going to be no different. Today we're going to find out a very weak place where Paul was, and we're going to see something very powerful about how God brings some strength into the midst of that. And that's 2 Corinthians where we are now. But remember, 2 Corinthians comes on the heel of 1 Corinthians. There was a church in a city named Corinth that Paul brought to know about Jesus. He developed them into people who followed Jesus, and then he started a church to try to teach them about Jesus. And so that church is operating, but then Paul leaves, and he finds out there's some problems, so he writes them a letter, tries to tell them to get their act together. Timothy takes the letter to them, and he comes back with a negative report for Paul, and things are not so good. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul continuing to try to fix the problems that they still didn't solve from 1 Corinthians. There are problems going on there. Well, uh, it should be no surprise to you that problems exist in churches. It should be no surprise to you that problems exist in this world. The entire theme of the book of 2 Corinthians to address these problems is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And this is a message we desperately need to hear. This is a message all of us need to hear, even today, because you know what? There's real hardship in the world. There's real trouble in the world. And there's also real hope in this world. So I want to start by recognizing one of my problems. If the world is messed up, I think I should let you know that uh, I'm messed up too. I got my own issues. And I'm going to start with my issues by asking you a question. What do you do when you know other people don't trust you? What do you do when you know other people don't trust you? I'll tell you how I get myself into this. Uh, so I'm the kind of person who, if you were to ask me to help you move, let's say you got a new job, you're moving across town or something, and you ask me to help you move, I will say yes. And then when the day comes, I frequently come up with um, double bookings. And for whatever reason, I choose to pick the other thing over you. It has happened more than once. I have said yes to someone without really looking at my calendar, without really looking at my situation, without really looking at things. And so I say, they ask me to move. I say, yeah, sure, I'll help you out because I actually enjoy helping people move. It's actually something that I like doing. And so I will say, yeah, I'll help you move because they're, they're going to give me pizza. It's always, the, it's always the case. There's always pizza. And so I'll say, yeah, sure, I'll help you move. Just tell me when, tell me where. And they tell me when, tell me where. I don't look at my calendar and then like the day before the move, they post to Facebook, hey, we're getting ready to move. And I finally look at my calendar and I've got like three or four other things going on. And I'm like, oh, now I have to say no. And if I say no enough times, people just don't trust me anymore. Now, I, I'm, I'm telling you a, a kind of a, a silly thing there because people still ask me if I'll help them move. No one's stopping asking me that. If anyone has to move, they, they still ask me that question. So it's not like I've actually broken people's trust on that. But there are other times in my life when it comes to that place where I realize this other person, they no longer trust me. 
Something happened in our relationship. Some difficulty showed up in our relationship. I said something the wrong way at the wrong time in the wrong method, uh, using the wrong technology or whatever, and uh, something happened in the relationship. And maybe you've been there with me before where you have done everything you possibly could to try to solve this problem. You've done everything you possibly could to try to fix that relationship. You think through yourself, what are the things that I need to apologize for? And you go and you, you apologize for them, but it doesn't go anywhere because the other person just has lost trust in you. They've just lost faith in you. And my question to you is, how do you feel when you reach that place? And you know that you could continue to do anything you could possibly think of doing, and the other person is shut off to you. The other person doesn't trust you. That's the accusation that Paul is facing when he writes the section we're going to read today. You see, there's some people in Corinth who say, you know what? That Paul, he says one thing and he does another thing. He writes one thing and he does something different. We can't trust Paul. We don't understand what this guy's all about. And since we can't trust him about these things, let's just not trust him at all. And Paul has lost his trust from those people. How do you feel when you're in that place? Helpless? Weak, wounded, frustrated, discouraged. There are all kinds of feelings that go along with that. Well, today's message, I believe, can help you. Today's passage, I believe, can help you because we're going to see Paul in three different ways in this passage. In order to understand the passage we're about to look at, we're going to consider three different layers of meaning. You see, there's one thing that's going on that Paul is writing about. The problem is what he's writing about involves things that happened before, and we don't know what happened before. Because there's some things that happened before that we don't have the whole story of. So what we do first is we're going to read the passage today to try to figure out what happened in the past. What happened in the past in Paul's relationship with these people to cause things to get messed up. So we're going to first try to focus on the past. Then we're going to look at the present. We're going to look at the text itself and the things that are in the text that Paul thinks are important for the people in the present. But there's one thing that goes on throughout the book of 2 Corinthians and is that no matter what's going on in the present or in the past, Paul has a promise for the future that he's holding on to. And so we're going to see that bubble up to the surface in this passage. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're still in the first chapter of this, but we're making our way through. Chapter 1, verse 12 is where we're going to start. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit because some of the passages are talking about the past. Some of the passages are talking about the future. Some of the passages are talking about the present. And so I'm going to skip around just a little bit. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 first. And then we'll jump to 23, and then eventually we'll read 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 17 at the end. But look with me at verse 12. He says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said to someone, Listen, I know my conscience is clear. I've done everything honorable with you. I don't know what your problem is with me. I don't know why you're feeling so bad about this situation because I've done everything I know how to do to do the right thing. That's what Paul's saying. He's just outright defending himself. He's trying to say, listen, I've done everything I know what to do. Then look at the next sentence. He says, we've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. He's like, I couldn't figure this stuff out by myself. I'm just trusting God and he's guiding me. Verse 13, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. By the way, that's just a little dig. 
Uh, Paul says, by the way, I haven't written you anything that's too hard for you. If you're not getting it, it's not my fault. That's basically what he just said. But see, he's still in this frustration sort of mode, and every now and then some of the frustrations come out too. And so he says, listen, I'm not writing you anything you can't read or understand. But then it flips, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. See, see, Paul says he's hopeful. He says, listen, I know that if you just pay some attention to the stuff that I've written you, you will get what I'm saying. You will understand what I'm saying. You will understand where I'm coming from. And if you understand me, then you will be proud of me even as I am proud of you now. This is an amazing thing. I feel this way with email all the time. I'll write an email and someone else will respond to me and I feel like they did not read my email. And so I'm thinking, what in the world? It was plain as day. I wrote it down and I always write the next email with optimism and hope. If you would just understand me, then you would be proud of my linguistic eloquence at putting this email together and you would be proud of me even as I am proud of you. But I know you uh, should be able to understand what I'm saying. I feel that way. But, and Paul, he's kind of there you know, with writing these letters, but it's important for you to realize he's actually optimistic about these people. He's actually optimistic about these people. Okay, now we're going to keep reading throughout the rest of this section. I might lose you a couple times, so then I'm going to come back and we'll fill in the blanks of the structure of what's happened in the story so far. So verse 15, because I was confident of this, that they would eventually understand him, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or did I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no, kind of like me saying I'll help you move? Yes, and then later on it's no. Let's skip ahead, verse 23. He says, I call God as my witness. And I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did. So that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Uh, Pause there. I want to fill in some blanks for you. So you can get the picture. Paul is describing in narrative form why his plans changed. Now, of course, I have to ask you, when do you ever need to defend yourself for changing your plans? I mean, you have to have a really broken relationship with someone for you to change your mind, change your plans, and for them to come up and say like, well, you said you'd do this, but then you ended up doing this. And Paul has to defend himself. Clearly, their relationship is broken. But let me give it to you in some bullet point fashion. First of all, Paul hoped for restored relationship with them. He had hope that he could restore their relationship. This is what happened. 
This is as well as we can put it all together. Paul writes 1 Corinthians, a letter to slap the people upside the head to get their act together. Because they weren't following Jesus, they were divided from each other, and they didn't trust Paul either. So he wrote 1 Corinthians to slap them up the head and to tell them to get their act together. Then Timothy takes the letter to them, and when Timothy gets there, he realizes it's gotten worse. In the time Paul was away writing his letter, Corinth got worse. The church got worse. And so Timothy comes back over to Paul in Ephesus. And he says, Paul, you won't believe it. It's worse than ever. And when I gave them your letter, they didn't really take it too well. In fact, things are, things are going on not so, not so good there. And Paul says, okay, now here's the important thing. At the end of 1 Corinthians, this was just a couple weeks ago for us, but at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul had said specifically, I plan to stay in Ephesus... And then I will travel through Macedonia, and then I will come to Corinth on my way back to Jerusalem. That's what he says. He says, I'm staying here in Ephesus, then I'm going to travel through Macedonia, come to Corinth, and then go back to Jerusalem. But he just got a report from Timothy. Timothy says, things are bad. And Paul says, okay, I've got to change my mind. And so here's the next part. Paul changed his mind, and his new plans involve two visits. He changes his mind. He says, okay, I'm going to go visit them now. So what I'll do is I'll leave Ephesus, even though I want to stay in Ephesus, I'll leave Ephesus, I'll go to Corinth, I'll meet with them now because we have to fix this relationship. Then I will travel up to Macedonia and then back down to Macedonia to visit Corinth a second time to make sure everything is copacetic and then I will go back to Jerusalem. That's his new plan. He changed his mind, changed his plans. Then he goes. He gets to Corinth And we don't know what happened. We just know Paul calls it a painful visit. We have a hint. In the next section we're about to read, we discover that there is a particular antagonist. There's one person who was Paul's antagonist somehow. So that when he goes to Corinth, he is trying to reestablish a relationship with them and some dude just lays into him. And it's so painful And it's so heartbreaking that Paul leaves. And while he's gone, he thinks. He says, I don't want to go back. So here's the next blank to fill in. He went there for his visit, but it was too painful. And he left in grief. And since he left in grief, he's now asking himself the question, I promised them I would visit them twice. But I can't go back now. Things are too bad. If I go back now, everybody's going to get hurt even more. So he changes his plans again, and he decides to write a letter. This time, it's not just a letter. It's a letter that he would call a severe letter, a harsh letter. See, this letter was so harsh, so severe, so painful that no one kept it. We don't have a copy of it. The church in Corinth never circulated it to other churches. The church in Corinth didn't package it up and keep it. They read it, and then it was done. No one wanted to keep that letter around. So whatever Paul wrote to them, he wrote so severely, like, oh my goodness, people, can't you get your act together? Do something about that guy who's such an antagonist to me. And here's the thing. The letter worked. The letter worked. 
but problems still persist. Keep reading with me, and you're going to hear how the letter worked, all right? So if you have 2 Corinthians still open, we're now in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, if anyone has caused grief, anyone, that guy, everybody knows who he's talking about. He's talking about that guy. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Here we find out the people in the church, the majority of the people in the church, they punished this guy. Somehow they punished this guy and Paul says, it's sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, I went to, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. And so there, Paul is just giving one more travel notice. And then verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So here throughout this thing, Paul is defending himself because some of them have accused him of being insincere. They've accused him of being insincere, not least this one dude. And so Paul wrote a severe letter. It went to them. They followed it, but they didn't follow it all the way. You see, it says the majority of people in the church punish this guy. But that means there's a whole bunch of others who were on his side. See, this church still has some problems. Even though Paul's letter worked, it still had some problems. There are three lingering problems. No blanks. I just put them on your note sheet here so you can see them. But the first problem is that some people haven't forgiven Paul's enemy. He has created a faction in the church. And Paul says, listen, you've got to forgive that guy. This is amazing to me. The man was Paul's adversary The church rises up and corrects him, and Paul's the one to say, so forgive him. And then he says this amazing thing. I mean, he doesn't mention the guy's name to prove for the rest of eternity that this man has been forgiven. Furthermore, he says in verse 10, what I have forgiven if there was anything to forgive. It's almost like Paul has forgotten what that whole thing was about. He's forgotten. But here's the point for you and for me. Paul says, forgiveness needs to happen, verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Do you realize what he's saying there? I just got to let you know, every now and then in church, you're going to find some relationship problems. Among Christian people, you're going to find some relationship problems. And I guarantee you this 100% of the time. When you find an unresolved relationship problem, when you find bitterness you will also find Satan weaseling his way into that church. I implore you, forgive. 
If something is going on in the church, forgiveness has to happen. Even though this guy was a massive antagonist to Paul, the one who caused Paul so much pain, he had to leave the town, tail between his legs, run away, and not go back. The reason, the motivation for this letter and all of Paul's pain in this letter is largely due to that guy. And Paul says, I don't really even remember what he, what he did. You just forgive the guy. You just need to forgive the guy. Sure, they corrected him. Sure, they challenged him. But apparently it worked. And now they need to forgive him. Two more lingering things. Some people still don't trust Paul. That's why he's explaining himself. That's why he's going through all this uh, detail about, you know, all of his travel plans and why his travel plans are changing. But now we come to the third lingering issue. And here, this part is so important. Paul realizes if they don't trust him, if they don't trust his travel plans, maybe they won't trust his message. See, Paul says yes to a travel plan, and then later he says no to that travel plan. And he's worried that some people are accusing him of being fickle. Some people are accusing him of saying yes in one hand and then saying no the next day. And Paul's like, oh my goodness, I just realized if you think that about me, you might think that about my message and I can't have that. And so now let's look at this passage where we skipped over in verse uh, 18. We're going to actually start in verse 17. Paul says, was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? Paul's like, don't, don't think that I'm a yes, no man. Don't think that I'm a yes now and no later kind of person or, or something like that. And then he goes on, he says, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, amen is a Hebrew word that means yah. It means you know it. It means it's certain. It means it's definite. It means I'm in with you on that. Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's the real problem. Paul recognizes as he's beginning to defend himself. I mean, that's the surface issue. He's defending himself against this accusation that he's fickle. He's defending himself about his travel things. But he realizes if they can accuse him about his travel itinerary, maybe they will want to accuse him for his message. And he says, no, I got to clear the air on this one. Even though I might sometimes look like a yes, no guy, God is not. The message is not. In fact, he goes further. He says God is an always yes kind of guy. God is, a, is an always yes kind of person. Every one of God's promises, he always does. Oh, and by the way, because of Jesus, he already did. It's not just that God will keep his promises. It's that God has kept his promise. Is there any promise in the Bible that God has not yet kept? No, they have all been kept. He promised he would come and he came. He promised he would save and he saved. He promised he would die for us and he did. He promised he would rise for us and he did. He promised so many things, including eternity. And even though eternity hasn't finished yet, by the way, it never will, it has definitely started. 
And so he says, God is an always yes kind of God. Now don't get me wrong. You can't take that statement and conclude, therefore, that God is always going to say yes to all of your little harebrained ideas. Because there is a clear difference between your expectations and God's promises. Just because I want something doesn't mean God has promised it. What we do is I want something, I think about something, I desire something, I expect something, and so then I I dig through the pages of Scripture to find one little verse in there that might fit me, and that might fit my little thing, and then I lift it up and I say, that's God's promise to me. How do you know? Well, I flipped open my Bible and stabbed it, and that one sounded like my current situation, and so that's God's promise to me, and now he's got to keep it, and if he doesn't keep it, well, then I get disappointed with God. No, God is an always yes God. The problem is you have a lot of things that aren't his promises. So let me just lay it down for you here. So real simple, simple words. Paul says in uh, no uncertain terms, people, including Paul, will let you down, but never the triune God. Our father in heaven made promises. He kept those promises in Jesus so that Jesus isn't always yes. And then he sent his spirit into your heart and into my heart, into the heart of every single person who would follow Jesus, every single person who would align themselves with him. The Holy Spirit has come into us, and he is a deposit guaranteeing that we are his. See, we are fickle people, yes, but God is not. He is an always yes kind of God. And that leads to the end. That leads to the final statement that... uh, Paul concludes this section with. And and it's a statement that is so profound and also confusing that we're going to spend a little bit of time on it. Because here's where the promise shows up. You see, the whole God is an always yes kind of God, that's still kind of talking about the past. God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus. But now Paul is thinking about the promise of the future. What is the promise he's holding on to for the future? And at the end of this passage in verse 14, 15, and 16, he lays that out for us. Now, you can read it in the NIV translation that we have in the church here, or or you can read it in other translations. I, I wanted to give you just a little flavor of the original language because there's something special Paul does here in the original language to intensify what he's saying. And so I'm going to show it to you in the English Standard Version. I'm not going to show it to you in Greek, but in the English Standard Version, it has a little bit more of the flavor of the original language, and so I just want to show it to you that way. Paul says this in verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is the promise. Paul's like, oh, this is the promise. God is a victorious God. He's an always God who's a victorious God, and if he's victorious, and his victory has been made evident in Christ, and if I follow Christ, then I'm in the triumphal victory procession. This is a picture of something that would happen in the ancient world, where in the ancient world, a king would go out to battle, and then he would come back from the battle having won the victory, and he would have captives behind him. And he would bring the captives into the city and they would become his slaves or maybe his subjects. But they would join him out on the battlefield and he would claim them as his own and he would bring them into the capital city. 
And while he was on his way in, the people in the city who were already the subjects, already captive, those people would say, the king is coming. And they would rush out to the city and they would meet him on the road and they would escort him back in because this was a triumphal procession. And maybe, just maybe, you're thinking about Jesus there. You're thinking about the day when Jesus sits on the donkey on uh, Palm Sunday, we call it, and then he rides on that animal into the city because for them, a war horse was for war, but donkeys were for peace. And so Jesus was riding this victorious animal, the peace animal, into the city. And Paul might be thinking about that day when Jesus rode in victorious splendor into the city and the people are waving their palm branches all through. And I I imagine there'd be a wafting in the air of the smell of the palm palm branches newly cut and maybe just the smell of of some other sort of joyful expression going on there. Or maybe, maybe Paul was thinking about what happened happened after Palm Sunday. In the week between Palm Sunday and Easter, there was a moment in that week when a woman came into the room where Jesus and his followers were eating, and she broke an entire bottle of perfume, cracked it, opened it, and poured it out all over Jesus. And the room would have been filled with such an intense smell of that fragrance that people could barely breathe. And Paul is, he's using that kind of metaphor. He's using this metaphor of triumphant, victorious Jesus. And we get to be with him. See, this is the promise. This is the hope Paul is holding on to, that he's hanging on to. This promise of our always yes God, who is always leading us in triumph, in triumphal procession because of Jesus. Listen, no matter what hardships Paul is facing, he looks at God as the always yes God, the God who is bringing us into victory. What an amazing picture. Let's keep reading. In verse 15, he says this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? That took a weird dark turn. The original language there says, to one, we are a fragrance from death to death. We're a fragrance out of death towards death. In other words, we're a fragrance that smells like death so badly it kills. We smell like death. To other people, we smell like life. But it's weird that Paul would say such a thing. And for you and for me, there's some things hiding in here that we don't see. Largely because this is translated for us into English. And there's some things going on in the original language behind that we don't see. And even if you knew the original language, you wouldn't notice this particular thing. You have to do a search for it. See, Paul does something weird there. He says, we are the aroma of Christ, which means God smells us like Jesus. When God smells us, he smells Jesus, which is an interesting sort of statement to make. But we smell like Jesus. We are the aroma of Christ. But there's, see, there's a thing. The word aroma is actually a special word. If you do an English search for the word aroma in your Bible, you're going to discover that in the NIV version of the Bible, the English word aroma shows up 41 times. 
39 of those times are in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers talking about sacrifices. One of those times is this passage right here. The other one is in Jeremiah talking about the smell of wine. But if you compare it with the Greek word behind it, there's a Greek word behind the word aroma. And if you do a search in the Bible on that word, it shows up 51 times. And would you guess how many times it refers to sacrifice? Yep, 51. 100% of the time. This word only ever means sacrifice. See, Paul says, thanks be to God that we are victorious, but we smell like a sacrifice. We smell like a sacrifice to God. We, we smell like Jesus. See, by comparing Paul, by comparing himself to Jesus, he's saying that my aroma to God is sacrifice. But my sacrifice is triumph. Now that's an interesting thought. My aroma is sacrifice. My sacrifice is triumph. It's an interesting thought, that, but it's one that Paul would talk about a lot in this, this book. Weakness is the place of strength. Sacrifice is the place of triumph. It's an interesting thing that Paul would do here. And we can get it in our minds mentally, but today, I want to push just a little farther. Today, I want to try to help us feel it. I want to try to help us get it emotionally. And the reason we can't get it emotionally is that we don't understand sacrifice. We don't understand sacrifice the way God has had sacrifice. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing, here's our word, aroma, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. God said, I smelled the sacrifice, and I will never curse the ground. Immediately after this is when God talks about putting the rainbow in the sky to remind us that he's never going to flood the earth again. But also, look with me at Exodus. Because in Exodus, at the end of the book, we now get instructions for Aaron, who's becoming the high priest, and God is telling him how to become the high priest, and so he gives him some specific instructions about a sacrifice that needs to be done. Take a look at this. It says, take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it and take the blood and splash it against the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash the internal organs and the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces, then burn the entire ram on the altar. Keep going. He says, it is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. This is what the Bible means when it uses the word aroma. It's talking about a sacrifice that pleases God so much that he considers your sins forgiven. A sacrifice that pleases God so much that he considers you holy. A sacrifice that pleases God so much that the burden is lifted off of your shoulders. And when I read those passages, oh, I gotta tell you, I think of that pleasing aroma of the sacrifice and what comes to my mind is charcoal and meat. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, what a great aroma. I've got a grill at my house right now that I was given for Christmas. And the weather is nice. And I now have a grill cover, so I'm not so worried about the rain. And so I fully intend to finally assemble this thing and put it in my backyard and get some charcoal down there and some good hard wood and just absolutely 
make some phenomenal meat. I'm really looking forward to that. And I think maybe you, you're, you're most of your experience with a, a flavorful aroma of some animal cooking is, is like that, something along those lines. But our problem is that we have lost touch with what sacrifices really were. You see, the smell of a sacrifice started way before the fire was lit. The priest would have an animal brought to him like a ram. And animals are smelly. And he would put his hand on the head of the ram and slit its throat. And then they needed to let all the blood drain out of it. Now, I don't know if you've ever been someplace where there's a lot of blood. It's not pleasant. I mean, no one ever wants to be there. They would collect it all, and then they would splash it against the sides of the altar, and sometimes even sprinkle it on the people. And they cut the animal open, they cut it into all kinds of pieces, they take all the internal organs out, they drain all the leftover fluids, they, they wash some of the organs, they, they put it all back on the fire, and for a whole burnt offering, everything is on that fire, intestines, everything is on that fire, head, everything is on that fire. And they put it all on the fire and then they light it and they, man, if you're there, that smells like death. And God calls that a pleasing aroma. Is it because God likes death so much? He wants gruesome things? No, 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 no. It's because God sees the sacrifice of the human heart that gives up something valuable so that that human heart can say, God, you're more important to me than this stuff. God loves that sacrifice. The animal's not the sacrifice. God loves the sacrifice that brought the animal. And the aroma of that whole thing is just pleasant to him. It's the smell of victory. But for you and for me, it smells like death. That's what Jesus smelled like. See, on the, on the day that they killed him, they first brought him to the high priest's house and they beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and that made him bleed. They took him out and they whipped him and that made him bleed. He was almost unrecognizable as a human. Then they made him carry his own cross and that made him sweat. And then he finally gets to the place where he can't carry it anymore and someone else carries it for him and then they get to the place where they're going to nail him to it and then they nail him to the cross and that would cause blood. And I'm imagining for the six or so hours he was hanging on that cross, they didn't really give him a bathroom break. What I'm saying is that if you were at that cross, it would have smelled like death. And the the centurion off to the side stabs Jesus and the blood and the water flows out. I'd, it has smelled like death. But some people who know about Sunday, some people who know about the resurrection, they would say, wait, wait a minute. That, yeah, it smelled like death. But, but that also is victory. 
that moment of tragedy, that moment of, that moment of, of death on the cross, that moment of torment, that, that whole thing. Yeah, it smelled like death. But do you know what happened on Sunday? On Sunday, Jesus came out of the grave. On Sunday, he woke up. On Sunday, he came out. On Sunday, he proved that that was victory. He proved that that other thing, even though it smelled like death, it was life. Oh my goodness, for the people, for the people who were there, it would have been terrible, but for the people who know the rest of the story, it's brilliant. Paul would say the same thing about himself. He would say, I'm the aroma of Christ. You know, when people look at me, Paul would say, they look at me and they look at my life, they look at the hardship, they look at the frustrations, they look at the difficulties that I'm going through, and those people in my life, they're going to look at me and they're going to say, Paul, your life stinks. Look at all the stuff you have to deal with. Look at all your issues. Look at all your problems. That stinks. And Paul would say, yeah, you might call it stinky. I call it victory. I smell like Jesus. I'm going through the hardship. I smell like Jesus. There's some people who would stand at the foot of the cross and they would see Jesus up there and they'd wince. And they'd be like, oh, it's just, it's no. But God... The father looks at Jesus and he says, yes. See, there's some people who make a big deal about a thing Jesus said. When he's hanging on the cross, he says this phrase. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And pastors around the world, they love to take that phrase and they love to go off in an interesting direction where they say this. They say, the father put all the sin of the world on Jesus and therefore the father had to turn his face away from Jesus because the father couldn't look upon sin. And so the father looked away from Jesus and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the father turned his face away. But the problem is if you look in the actual text of scripture, that never shows up anywhere, anywhere. In fact, if you knew anything about what Jesus was doing when he was on the cross and he declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's simply reading the first verse of Psalm 22, the same Psalm that later on would say, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. The same Psalm that later on would say, they cast lots for his clothing. The same Psalm that later on will say, but he will not abandon his Holy One to the grave. And the same Psalm that says, He has not hidden his face from me. I bet you, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, his father doesn't turn away. His father cheers for him. And he says, yes, that's what I'm looking for. God doesn't want the sacrifice. He's not into the blood and the gore. He's not into that. What he's into is the heart of a person who loves other people so much he'll sacrifice his life for them. Greater love has no one than this that he would lay down his life for his friend. And the father says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. He always leads us in triumphal procession. Because Paul would say, we are the aroma of Christ. I got to ask you, does your life stink? Is there, is there something in your life right now that you would say that and that just stinks? Yeah. Imagine a lot of us have something like that. But you know what the Apostle Paul would say? He'd he'd say, I win. I I just smell a little bit more like Jesus. I'm going through this hard time. I'm going through this difficult thing. Yeah, I'm going through hardship. But guess what? I just smell a little bit more like Jesus. And my aroma is sacrifice. And my sacrifice 
is triumph because there is a God in heaven who cheers over me. And he says, yes. I want to invite you today to come to Jesus, to come forward, receive communion. And when you do, I want you to, I want you to say in your heart, Jesus, I know what you've been through. I know how you suffered. I know your hardships and I know that you did it all for me. And I receive it today. I receive it today. I ask that you would take my life and make my life a glowing, victorious aroma to you. Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone.